This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and happy Mother's Day to all the moms. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. It's short but intense. The Ontario election campaign officially got underway on Wednesday and wraps up in less than four weeks from now when voters go to the polls on June 2nd. Two years after thousands of elderly nursing home residents died in the early waves of the COVID pandemic, will senior care resonate for voters as a priority issue in this election? On the Thursday before Doug Ford visited the lieutenant governor to request the dissolution of provincial parliament, his finance minister, Peter Bethlehem Falvey, unveiled the provincial budget, also known as the Progressive Conservatives' election platform. In it, there is a proposal for a new tax credit for older Ontarians receiving care at home to cover the cost of medical devices and services. Designed to add on to the existing provincial and federal medical expense tax credits, the Seniors Care at Home Tax Credit offers a 25% tax break on a senior's at home medical costs up to $6,000. The maximum amount the credit can net is $1,500. CARP members like this, but also say it's not enough to expand health care in a significant significant and meaningful way. This is where Libby began the conversation with our new Recovering Politicians panel heard every Tuesday. Howard Hampton is the former leader of the Ontario NDP. Charles Souza is a former Ontario Liberal Finance Minister. And Lisa Raitt is a former Deputy Leader of the Federal Conservative Party. I see it as a really good step. And I'm a proud member of CARP, actually, Libby. So I I agree with them on this point for sure. The reason why I think it's good is it being a refundable tax credit is the absolute key, which means in some cases, you know, folks don't actually make enough income so that it makes a matter. In this case, it does make a matter. It's recognizing that you're out of pocket. You know, there's, there's a big, um, there's something secretive within the system of caregiving that if you want to hire somebody to come in outside of home care, if you want somebody to cover for a couple hours, it does tend to be a cash business. And having people have the incentive to be able to pay uh, more than just under the table, I should say, it, I think is a, is a very, very good thing to do because that affords caregivers far more protection in employment and, and a far better place than having to work under the table. It's so expensive. Charles, does this 1500 bucks? I mean, for people who have to take this on, it, it, does that go anywhere to helping them? I mean, as you've mentioned, it's very expensive, and I'm sure it's been tough uh, on those that are caregivers. Uh, as Lisa mentioned, it's everything helps, and certainly uh, when you have the refundable tax credit, that also means that the caregiver has to declare income. And when they're doing cash, it's less uh, onerous, I guess, to to the buyer in this case. Um, But the point is, home care is where people want. People wouldn't want to have as much support as they can. 
this helps. Every every little bit helps in the end. Um, but yeah, it's way more expensive than 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 what is being proposed. Howard Hampton in talks with uh, pollsters and stuff. That's one thing the PCs are offering, but it doesn't seem like healthcare is their focus aside from some infrastructure projects. How do you see uh, the role of healthcare in their platform versus the opposition parties? I think uh, people better read the fine print very, very carefully because uh, in, in effect, what's happening when you factor in inflation, when you factor in the fact we have an aging population, when you factor in we have a growing population, in fact, there will be less money for health care overall. Now, the, you know, the refundable tax credit uh, may, may be popular with some folks, but when you are c- cutting, in effect, health care dollars overall, I think we're headed for trouble. And I don't think it'll be very long before people see that trouble. Uh, I mean, let's just go back a few months and and think, uh, and and think about what we saw in long term care. I mean, literally, there were not enough staff in long term care to look after people, so you had to bring in the military. Now, this is not going to change that. In fact, if if you have a growing population and an aging population. And you know that the care needs are going to be heavier. And you, at the same time, you are, in effect, cutting health care. We're headed for trouble. Charles, uh, do you think the Conservatives, are they banking that people will forget what happened in long-term care? It's a puzzlement. Like, why these basic areas of responsible leadership, like health care and education, and the environment, for that matter, that is being gutted, why would you want to vote for Ford? The issue I find that's really interesting is, you know, the left are, 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 you know, branded as being wasteful. The NDP has published a huge 95-page platform, and they unveiled PharmaCare, and you talked a lot about health care, but it's not persuasive. So what is it that motivates these voters? And I guess it's how they make you feel. And, and then Doug Ford is making you feel pretty good, notwithstanding the shortcomings that he's had over these past years. Charles Souza is a former Ontario Liberal finance minister, Howard Hampton, former leader of the Ontario NDP, and Lisa Raitt, former deputy leader of the Federal Conservatives. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Still with the election and the issue Doug Ford chose to kick off his re-election campaign, and it very clearly separates the progressive conservatives from the opposition parties. It's the proposed Highway 413, with the Tories boasting they are the only ones who will build it which is true. Ironically, it was first proposed in 2005 under the Liberals, but later the current Liberal leader, Stephen Del Duca, canceled the project when he was the transportation minister in Kathleen Wynne's government. Fight Back gathered a panel of stakeholders to discuss the pros and cons of a Highway 413. Green Party leader Mike Schreiner, Vaughan City Councillor Alan Sheffman for Ward 5 Thornhill, Brampton City Councillor Doug Willens, and Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca. Well, look, I paused the project as Minister of Transportation because I had grave concerns about its negative impact on the Greenbelt on farmland, on wetlands, on protected spaces. 
So at the time I paused it, I appointed an independent panel to do a review of the project. They came back with a unanimous opinion that said if it was built, it would cost multi-billions of dollars and only save a relatively small handful of commuters about 30 seconds per day. Just couldn't justify a multi-billion dollar investment that would pave over the green belt and destroy wetlands and farmland and not provide real commuter relief. So we stopped it the first time. And if elected premier in a few weeks, I will stop it once and for all. And I will take the $10 billion Doug Ford wants to waste on Highway 413 and invest it in repairing our existing public schools and building new ones. Doug Willens, what are you finding from your constituents in a very bread and butter kind of way in terms of the highway? Well, I think the uh, the, the new residents in the area, the Northwest, which is uh, our last real frontier, the Heritage Heights area, um, we have a lot of the landowners, a lot of the stakeholder groups that live in that area that really came together to uh, to look at uh, the boulevard that we wanted to do in, in our Heritage Heights uh, secondary plan. Um, we're mixed use. We're Obviously, we hear some people saying, you know, we've got to get another highway, but uh, I think generally a lot of people would rather see, uh, you know, an urban boulevard to our community. Um, and now a lot of them are coming out saying, you know, <laughs> they're opposing because it is tearing up a bit of a lot of the green belt and it's uh, it's actually putting more people on the roads where in Brampton, we're trying to do the opposite. We're, you know, electrifying our bus fleets and, uh, you know, it was Stellantis just allowing, uh, announcing the new electric vehicles and that we're really moving towards electrification of our own fleet. So it's kind of kind of goes against everything we want to do here in Brampton. So I think a lot of the constituents are now have some concerns about the highway. Alan Sheffman, where are you at on this? I think we're in a very similar position as my friend from, friend from Brampton, in the sense that uh, the area of the proposed, the path of the uh, proposed highway is 60% in the green belt in Vaughan and 40% in provincially identified prime Farmland. So we have both environmentalists, people who are concerned about sustainability, as well as practically uh, the practical landowner, the person who's doing the work producing food for all of us, who are very, very concerned about their livelihood. They're going to be destroyed uh, uh, by uh, the, by this highway. So you know, it's so important. I think we all know of production of food, and here we have prime farmland, and it's going to be destroyed by this highway. So what about uh, the arguments, Mike Schreiner, that, uh, you know, otherwise there is gridlock, and this is where people are moving, and they need to be able to get around when there's not adequate public transit? The Ontario Greens would absolutely stop this highway, and like the councillor suggested, we put concrete proposals uh, out there to um, utilize the 407 better. Um, it would be far cheaper to have a government-funded, dedicated truck lane on the 407. It would cost, estimates are, around $260 million a year, which is a fraction of the $10 billion it would cost to build a new highway. And not only would that help alleviate um, you know, truck traffic through the region, it would also help alleviate truck traffic off of the 401 as well. Uh, we've also put on the table, let's build transit out to Bolton, which is a major uh, hub in that area, uh, looking for uh, transit release. And one of the fastest ways we can um, increase transit ridership is to have dedicated bus lanes uh, to be moving people with electrified buses at a low cost, low impact to the environment, reducing climate pollution, saving taxpayers a ton of money. 
and not forcing people into expensive, uh, long, soul-crushing commutes, which nobody wants. People want to live in communities uh, where they can live, work, play, and shop locally, not have to commute hours, which is what Doug Ford is proposing. Green Party leader Mike Schreiner, Vaughn City Councilor Alan Sheffman for Ward 5 Thornhill, Brampton City Councilor Doug Willens, and Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Coming up after the break, should gas-powered leaf blowers finally be banned in Toronto? We'll discuss next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. It's that time of year when we're starting to hear lawnmowers and leaf blowers as springtime brings people out to their yards to take care of and clean up their properties. A renewed effort is underway in some Toronto neighborhoods to ban gas-powered leaf blowers, which might encourage people to go electric, making for a much quieter and environmentally friendly option for Toronto residents. A City of Toronto staff report on what to do about leaf blowers has been taking a very long time, but is due to be released this coming week before it goes to committee. Joining Libby for a discussion on gas-powered leaf blowers and what to do about them, Joe Salome, Deputy Executive Director, Landscape Ontario Horticulture Trades Association, Toronto City Councillor James Pasternak, and Harold Smith, Director of the Lytton Park Residence Organization, who's been trying to get them banned for years. Well, I, I, I think I've been doing it for about 15 years <laughs> memory serves me right, I, I remember corresponding with Karen Stintz when she was on council. And, you know, she seemed receptive, but she said, we'd have to wait until the city does it before we can ask other people to do it. And that was before battery-operated equipment was viable. So I, I, I've been part of the Toronto Noise Coalition, um, a group of people that are advocating for a tough noise bylaw that protects people um, instead of protecting industries from regulation. We sat in with uh, industry and MLS staff, I think about three or four years ago, possibly more. And as far as we're concerned, nothing meaningful. Um, you know, my neighborhood isn't quieter than it was before. In fact, I think it's even noisier. But that was addressing construction noise, um, mechanized gardening noise, etc. So yeah. here we are in 2022 and another report's coming out. So I don't know. My hope, I don't have high hopes about it. Councillor Pasternak, where is it at? I know that uh, COVID was uh, cited as the reason it's taking so long. And, and uh, what will happen if and when we finally see this report next week? Well, I mean, we're we're all very anxious for this report. This has gone on too long, and um, I, I really wish um, people would stop hiding behind COVID because this is the type of thing that could easily uh, have been done um, 
during a pandemic, there's nothing, there's no supply chain issues with bringing a report back, uh, you know, with recommendations. So um, that being said, it's time, it's time to move on. The, um, the tabling of the report is imminent, and uh, and we're very anxious to see it. This is this is something that's um, not only a disruption in our local neighborhoods of people trying to enjoy, uh, you know, the, the the quiet of their of their private property, but also um, it is it is a pollutant, and uh, so either on the climate change side or on the environment side. Or on sort of the, the the neighborhood enjoyment side. Either way you look at it, you know it's it's a it's a problem, and we have to we have to address it. And and no one's saying they can't hire a lawn care service or uh, or, or such. Uh, and there are alternatives: battery operated, electrical. Uh, they're coming on the market with uh, with enormous uh, sophistication. I'd like to bring in Joe Salome. He is the Deputy Executive Director of Landscape Ontario Horticulture Trades Association. I'm assuming that you are opposed to banning. Yeah. Not necessarily. With our member community, there is free training that comes along with uh, leaf blowers. And, um, you know, the, the, uh, the equipment that we use to demonstrate that is gas powered. And one of the very first things that we address is the courtesy to offer to the community while that piece of equipment is in use. Like I said, nobody likes to be interrupted, especially through COVID as more people working from home, properties being taken care of, um, more people so spending the, um, money on. So what services. is, what is the courtesy? So the, uh, the, the best practices uh, should be for any one particular property, anywhere between uh, one to three, maybe five minutes of a use of a leaf blower to use half throttle. Um, the, uh, it doesn't always have to be a full throttle use uh, of the equipment to achieve the result that, the, uh, that you're looking for. Councillor Pasternak. We need all levels of government to work together to make sure that this equipment is no longer available in, at a retail uh, end, and that good, modern, clean, um, quiet equipment is, is brought to market in its place. Toronto City Councillor James Pasternak, Joe Salami, Deputy Executive Director, Landscape Ontario Horticulture Trades Association, and Harold Smith, director of the Lytton Park Residence Organization. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. How much sleep do you get every night? How much sleep should you get? The latest research says that for middle-aged and older people, there is a magic number, and it is seven hours. The study in the journal Nature Aging found that getting either more or less than that number could cause a reduced ability to pay attention, remember, and learn new things, solve problems, and make decisions. Seven hours is also linked to better mental health, with people experiencing more symptoms of anxiety and depression and worse overall well-being if they reported sleeping for longer or shorter stints. Fight Back gathered some experts to help us understand this new research and what it means for getting a good night's sleep. 
Dr. Richard Horner is Professor of Physiology and Medicine at the University of Toronto and author of The Universal Pastime, Sleep and Rest Explained, as well as Dr. Andrew Lim, Sleep Neurologist at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre. The main take-home from the study is is that sleep is probably important for uh, cognition, for mental health, and for each individual person. There probably is a person-specific ideal sleep time, right? So, so yeah. But but I think I think to bear in mind is that this is a study of of many thousands, like many hundreds of thousands of, of individuals, uh, and, and what they found was on average. Uh, when you consider hundreds of thousands of individuals, uh, people seem to do a little bit better uh, who had closer to seven hours of, of sleep. Uh, it's really, really hard, though, to extrapolate this up to the individual situation. So we know uh, that there are many factors that go into how much sleep you actually need. Genetic factors, uh, medical factors, uh, social factors, uh, and that for any given individual, uh, the magic number, so to speak, uh, may be different from seven hours. So there are some individuals who may need eight or nine hours uh, and who would perform optimally uh, with those numbers. Uh, there are other individuals who may actually only need uh, six or, or fewer hours uh, and would perform optimally in that setting. So I think it's really, really difficult uh, to take away from the study of hundreds of thousands of individuals uh, a, a single unitary magic number of the amount of sleep any given individual needs. Uh, Dr. Horner, do you agree? Do you think maybe seven is not exactly the magic number? Yeah, I think uh, Dr. Lim put it very nicely. I think the, I think the key element for the listeners is there is no magic number. There's a range of numbers, and I think that's really the key. Um, the National Sleep Foundation, which is a large body in the United States uh, comprising a lot of people, analyzed hundreds of, of scientific studies over many years looking at many outcomes, and they didn't come up with a number. They came up with a range, which I think is far more helpful. And so, for example, in adults between 26 and 64, the optimal range, and what I mean by that is for optimal health and in particular, uh, how, how people feel about uh, their cognitive function, whether they feel top of their game. And that range of numbers includes seven hours, but it's seven to nine. And I think people who are in that range are choosing those, uh, that amount of sleep through their how they feel, that's the, that's the optimum uh, amount for, for them to feel top of their game, but also it's constrained by people's, you know, uh, having to get up for work and commute, etc. So I think the idea of a magic number is not the message that should be perhaps taken from that study. Is The reality is there is a range, and it's the range that people should be concerned with. And if they are outside of that range, to maybe assess for themselves what it is that they, they may be sleeping shorter or, or longer amounts and maybe put in place strategies to improve that. Dr. Lim, what would you like to leave us with on this? Well, I'm just getting back to, to, to the, the study that prompted this whole discussion. Yeah. I, I want to just reiterate the idea that, that really there, there's no single magic number for the amount of sleep we should get. The, the amount of sleep that, that you need depends a lot uh, from person to person. Um, and, and to a large extent, I mean, if you're you know, falling asleep easily, uh, staying asleep, uh, and, and are, are feeling good during the day, you're able to stay awake and do the things you want to do and are feeling good about it, uh, then, then you're probably getting uh, the amount of sleep that you need. Dr. Horner, last 20 seconds to you. Yeah, absolutely. Sleep is a, just a wonderful thing. 
And if I think we can all find the ways, and we, we know them in advance about ways to improve our sleep and just really go for it because it's just so much benefit and reward from prioritizing it, really. Dr. Richard Horner, professor of physiology and medicine at the University of Toronto, and Dr. Andrew Lim, sleep neurologist at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. Bridget in Toronto phoned about a proposed ban on gas-powered leaf blowers. I guess, you know, this all comes back to our need for perfection. I I recently um, started to build a house up north, and unfortunately, one sunny morning, started to hear that sound and thought, really, up here? Um, I just, I think we have to get away from the idea that there's something wrong with having a leaf on your grass. And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week is Ron in Guelph, who phoned about the proposed controversial Highway 413. I don't know how the Conservatives can justify it. And I think if there's going to be any debates, either locally and all those writings to go through it, I think those uh, Conservative um, candidates and Doug Ford, they've got to figure out a way to justify it. And from what Mike and what everything that I've read, 30 seconds. The other side of this thing is uh, Doug Ford won't cost it. They say $10 billion. Well, you and I both know that $10 billion today is $20 billion in a few more years, right? That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby and call our Fightback voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.